everyone, welcome to the weekend podcast. It is Oliver Callan here on the first weekend in March. I hope you didn't get caught too badly or at all in the chaos of the snow, and that maybe you're enjoying your weekend by now and not calling for the head of Met Aaron for failing to predict the precise temperature of precipitation on an island that is usually barely visible from space because of the sideways rain and even wind that you could probably see. This is a catch up or a wrap of all the good things we did this week and that we think you should definitely here but I will also have some messages and emails that we received from listeners because we had one big topic in the show this week we didn't get time to get to everything on the radio show so all of those bits and pieces packaged into one neat ear hug just for you so yeah the big thing we did this week we spoke to a mother whose anguish over her teenage child's anxiety laden absence from school for two years it absolutely sparked an avalanche of correspondence from listeners that's a snow reference then of course we have Emmett Kerwin he came in for a chat he was talking about the state of Dublin City's nightlife as he marks 10 years since his award winning play Dublin Old School remember that it was a play that became a movie and it kind of talks about a very specific moment in time in Dublin in 2014 he's 10 years older now he's in his 40s has a young child his life is different and so is Dublin and we're going to end the podcast then with a very positive message from a 23 year old artist he's from Ballymun uh, he's getting teenagers involved in art after his qualification from the National College of Art and Design, which is a very prestigious place, of course, for artists to go to. 23 years of age from Ballymun, and Aaron Carey Sunderland is his name. So his interview really lifted people, and it gave them a whole new perspective on the views of young people, because he's worked with them, you see, and he's able to talk about you know, their hopes and dreams, how, how they view their place in the world, and how they view Ireland, and so on. So he talked about young people in a dashingly good way. But back to that serious issue. This is the big beating heart of the show this week. It's a problem that is thrown in under a broad and usually misleading label of school refusals. That's what it's called by the state. Tens of thousands of children, most of them teenagers, they're not going to school because they either won't or they cannot. And we met Kerry. She's the mom of a 14-year-old boy. And he went from being a happy kid in primary school, very sporty, very excited about his life, to an absolute wreck who did not turn up for secondary school, hardly at all. He had the inexplicable fear of schooling, which just came upon him very quickly overnight. Huge panic attacks, sense of despair, and it effectively ended his education for 24 months. His family tried everything that they could do to help. Punishment, reward, warnings that the authorities would charge them if he didn't get his education. And we heard from a lot of people, this is very associated with the pandemic time, the end of lockdowns, huge, huge increasing volume of youngsters who are being bundled into the crude heading of school refusal. It has quadrupled, in many cases, the number of unexplained absences since before, you know, the, the last comparable period before lockdowns, 2019 into 2020. The rough stats show that the number of kids in school has exploded. Two-thirds of those are put down in the school absence reports that are collected by the authorities as unexplained. And inside that label are the kids. And we heard from a lot of the parents of these children who are avoiding school because of anxiety, fear, total trepidation, and parents do not know what to do or where to go for help. The volume of mess, I have to say, the messages and the volume of them coming in from listeners was extraordinary. People were writing these emails overnight after we met Kerry. They were long, thought out, drawn essays of despair, really, is what they were. And there were little moments of hope, too. We heard from some people who were those kids some years ago, and as teenagers, 
they say they didn't have the ability to articulate why they couldn't go to school but years later all those things would then come to them and some of them actually amount to great things in life Nora Toomey wrote to us from Cartoon Saloon which she co-founded she's been nominated for Oscars she left school at 15 without a junior cert or a leaving cert now there were some messages that we couldn't get to on the radio because there were so many one mother emailed us she said in September 2022 my eldest started secondary school by October I was getting frequent calls to collect him due to stomach pains, which were actually anxiety. He was finding the school environment overwhelming. The school was very supportive, offered him a quiet space at the break time to decompress. However, being constantly subjected to the busy and noisy environment of secondary school was taking a toll on his mental health, so much so that I chose to withdraw him in November for his own well-being. I can tell you the decision was met with a lot of judgement and criticism from those closest to me. There's a belief that if you keep pushing them, it will develop resistance. It actually had the opposite effect. A GP in Limerick sent us a message as well. Great item, this doctor said, on school refusals, as they're so-called. It's quite a big problem, and there's no solution, as Kerry, the parent, says. She did everything, going to the GP, to CAMS, the uh, mental health services on behalf of the state for young people, hypnosis, cognitive behavioural therapy privately, and tough love. I met a mother in yesterday with the same issues. And we'll also have, after Kerry, we're going to be talking to Brona Stars, who is a consultant psychotherapist in this area. And she talks about how sometimes doing the tough love, like saying you need to go to school and trying to force them, and doing the kind of proverbial kick up the backside, that doesn't work. Even the encouragement things, that you're going to be fine, everything's fine, you're so talented, you're amazing, doesn't work. And she had some useful tips which are worth uh, listening out to. So you will hear Kerry the parent, then we'll have Brona Stars, um, consultant psychotherapist after that. And after that topic, stay listening because Emmett Kerwin will give you a lift. He's the playwright and actor. You know him. Fierce, interesting fella. Always has a sharp take on the state of Irish arts. He talks about Dublin Old School, as I said already, and he talked to us about the chats he had with Anthony Hopkins. Only last year on the set of a new movie called Freud's Last Session, entirely shot in Ireland, just went out of the Dublin International Film Festival and is being released sometime later this year. He has a good old chat. And at the very end of the podcast, we have a conversation with a young lad who wants to encourage teenagers to engage with art, particularly galleries, art spaces. Many of these kids don't go because they don't feel so welcome there, especially if, like Aaron Sunderland Carey, they're from working class urban areas who look a certain way, dress a certain way. But Aaron had great things, incredible things really to say about the state of our teenagers, their tiny grievances, which are quite funny sometimes, but also the very big fears for the future. They're far more clued into housing jobs and the prospects of that generation, Generation Z. Far more clued in than you'd expect first years, second years in secondary school to be. And he had a message for the authorities on how to run things for the benefit of those generations. He was a class act. He nearly should run for election if that were not to completely destroy him. That's what's in the podcast. I hope you stay listening. Please do subscribe to the show on your app, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and all that crack. Thanks for the support as well. Listen to The Wireless 2. We're on RT Radio 1 after 9 until 10am every Monday to Friday. And keep an ear out to the very end of the podcast as well because there'll be some nice music there. So enjoy the podcast and chat to you on the radio anon.
On any given day here, about 60,000 children and teenagers do not show up for school. Helplines for parents, they report the number of calls about kids refusing to go to school and other issues relating to absences has doubled since the lockdown. So what can parents do if a child won't or can't attend classes? Where do they go and who can help? It's a very broad issue, but Kerry is the mother of a teenager in Dublin. She's in studio with us this morning. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning. Uh, Here to tell us about your particular experience because, Kerry, one day... Your son just stopped going to school. Can you can you take us back to that time? What happened? Yeah, if I take you back to um, 2020, mm-hmm. he um, had a normal primary school experience. He went to a really lovely small primary school out near us mm-hmm. and he was happy, he was confident, he was social. He really loved primary school. And then I suppose the pandemic hit the whole of Ireland in fifth class of his time in fifth class. Yeah. And the schools around the country closed their doors. And so he missed a lot of fifth and sixth. So the I, end of primary school. The end entirely. of primary school. The really formative end of primary school. So I feel that played a big part in, in him not being able to transfer to secondary school. So he started in secondary school in September 2021. Right. So we were still in the midst of the pandemic. It was kind of opening, shutting. It was opening and shutting. Rows and rules. Yes, kids were... Yeah. Kept in, kids were allowed out. Um, so when he started in his secondary school, he'd never been in the school building before. So there was no inductions. There was nothing, you know, to, to prepare them. Um, and they were all wearing masks and they were all in pods. So mm-hmm. they were actively not encouraged to socialise. So despite all of that, he really loved secondary school. He really? joined clubs, he joined sports, he made friends and he seemed to be doing really, really well. And then in the January of first year, so the second term, he, just after Christmas, he started to show a little bit of reluctance to go to school. There was a couple of issues with friendships um, and he started complaining of pains in his tummy. Um, And he had his first panic attack in the second week in January. He'd never, ever had anxiety before. He never showed any signs of any, you know, worries or anything like that he he had a fight flight response in the car park in school is that that's where the panic attack happens in the car park did you witness that yes that must be pretty scary it was really it was really scary because on the surface it looked like something very very serious had happened because it was real fight or flight response he basically curled up into a ball in the footwell of the car and said, screamed, get me out of here. So uh, obviously myself and my husband's initial response was to try and find out what happened. Yeah. And so we began the journey through the GP. We went, we got a referral for CAMS. We... The mental health services for young the people. The mental health services. We really thought something had happened. In the meantime, we were trying to get him into school. So this was going on for... Five, six months, we would get up. We would try to get him into school. He would go into fight or flight. There was no getting him out of the car. There were Teachers would come out to the car. They would reassure him. Wow. We, so he would, you could get him out of bed, dressed? He wanted to go. He really wanted okay. to go. He, he wants an education and he would, spe- he would talk himself around every morning. He'd be like, you've got this. I'm going to be okay. I know I'm safe. But we would get to the building and his body would just take over. 
So we tried lots of different therapies. We tried hypnotherapy because he was 13 at the time. So we, you know, we didn't want to do so much talk therapy, although we did do a course of CBT, which is talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Cognitive behavioural therapy. And I presume you would have been at this stage thinking it's the issues with friendships you mentioned that maybe something has happened in the school, bullying or so on, or just isolation. Yeah, my gut all along was that it was not one particular thing, that it was a mix of a lot of things. It was a mix of transferring to secondary school when he clearly hadn't, you know, been prepared. Um, Friendships were were tricky. Um, He was very... um, he was a joker, so he was giddy. Yeah. And so he wasn't always focused, although really, really bright. He, you know, he would be the joker too. He's good. <laughs> so he's fun. the showman in the classroom. Showman. Yeah. Very popular. Just, all just came to a halt. All just came to a crashing halt. He changed overnight. He absolutely changed overnight. And I was so frustrated because we could see that he had changed. A, a switch went off. And nobody seemed to be able to tell us why. So we did, as I say, we did some amazing therapy with him. Yeah. Um, but nothing, nothing huge came out of the therapy. And so he would, he would learn techniques, breathing techniques. He would read self-help books. He would journal. So would, he was looking for solutions He himself. was so... Great what are the conversations like when you ask him, why can't you go to school? Or I, He would just say to me, Mum, I don't know. Let's try. Let's go. And we would get there and his body would take over. And the panic attacks sometimes would go on for hours. It was like he went to some other place at times, mm-hmm. not all the time. But they would go on for hours and then I would question him afterwards and he would say, I don't remember. He just knew that if he got out of the car, he felt unsafe. And he wouldn't remember the episode? Not always. He wouldn't remember, you know, if teachers came out to the car in, in the height of it, he wouldn't remember those conversations. He just was fighting for his life. He had to get it out wow. of the car park. Presumably after missing, I think it's 20 days of school, that, that it becomes an issue then, doesn't it? The they school generally that. gets in touch with the authorities. They say that, yeah. What happens in your case? Um, no one came looking. No one came looking. So After the 20 days? And so no. Okay. I mean, I was in touch with the school because I would come up with ideas and I would suggest it to them and, and ask them for support in the mornings. So I suppose I was touching base. There was periods where I where we kept him home because obviously his mental health was starting to suffer. Yeah, um, Be- it's because of he just had no reason that he couldn't go to school. Is that he the- had no reason other that his body was telling him he was unsafe. That's as clear as I can say it. That's as clear as he can say it today. Yeah, something was telling him he had to get out of there. So I would I would touch base with the school. But there was periods where, long periods where he didn't present in school and no one came looking. OK, um, because I think the procedure is the school is supposed to contact Tuzla. Isn't that the idea? That's correct. And say there's a problem here. There's a kid not, not coming to school. But maybe you had already been in touch with the school. Is that an explanation? Um, I think they're so overwhelmed that oh, right. they didn't get to it. 
So did you have any interaction with Tuzla at all in the end? I did at the end of the road. So So how long was he out of school before? So he was out of school. We moved him uh, in second year. We we decided to do a clean slate. We worked okay. in him all summer. He worked in himself. He was in a good place. He went we st- we moved him to a smaller uh secondary school near us. Yeah. He made the he made the choice. He had an interview and he loved it. And he went in the first day and he loved it. He went in the second day and he thought to himself, what if I have a panic attack in here? Right. And that was it. And it triggered again. And that was it. He was gone again. So he only did, he barely did two days. He barely did two days. So that was second year. So that was the journey of second year. They were superb. The staff were all so kind, but Mm -hmm. there was nothing anyone could do that made him feel safe. So... They engaged with their NEP psychologist mm-hmm. and Tusa got involved then. Right. So that in, was in only school. after 10 months of that school. Before we get into then what you do next, are there other parents, is the school telling you this is something we're seeing increasingly post lockdown? Absolutely. This, this is yeah. what they're telling you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they're seeing it across the board with the other principals in the areas mm-hmm. because they're all in touch with each other. But they, other than having a resource pack, they don't have a huge amount of support. And a child who's presenting like that in a school needs a person with them because they feel unsafe, but they don't have the resources. Which would be an SNA, especially. An SNA or resources teacher. Um, We would get an hour in our school, which was great. But after the hour... That, you know, that was it. He was unsafe. He felt he, unsafe again. At some some days. Yeah. Okay. Um, so is he kind of still going in and out to the new so, school? So and it, eventually we were offered an alternative learning program out in Dunleary, which is a, it's it's like a youth centre. It's offered for three days a week for a couple of hours for a short period of time. It was six weeks. And so he was able to go out and, you know, engage with his tutors, meet a couple of other children in the same boat and do some project work. But that's all with the view of getting back into school. I see. So after that program, he had some success integrating back into school, but it it went very quickly downhill. It went back to the way it was. While he was in the place in Dunleary, he must have had, uh, he must have been relieved to hear that he wasn't the only one. He was, and he was relieved to hear there was nothing wrong with him because mm. he went to that no problem. He loved it. And so it's lovely to see after a year and a half of being in his room, it was lovely for him to have a purpose to get up every day. That was the biggest problem because the only thing he was getting up for was trying to get into school, in which he failed every day. So you can imagine. You're, as ki- the you're months, kind of kicking yourself every single day. Every single that. day he yeah. felt like he'd failed. And I couldn't reassure him because there was no, there was nothing else to offer him. Mm. I was, we were both, my husband and I, both saying, you've got to go to school. There's, you're 13. You can't, you've got to go to school. Yeah. And you're you're legally required to ensure he gets an education. Absolutely. I mean, we're saying all these things. We talked about police. We talked about, you know, we tried everything we Mm. took away. All his lovely stuff. Then we went the other extreme and bought him all the lovely stuff. 
as if it was a choice. Punishment, reward. Punishment, or we did psychologists, it all. Everything. We did it all. There must have been a, a psychologist or somebody, a counselor somewhere along the, the line that said that pointed what the issue. There was lots of reasons thrown in, but I can honestly say, and I'm still not out of the woods now, but I can honestly say, the pandemic was the start of it for him. Mm-hmm. He was in his room during pandemic and I have a daughter who's a year and a half younger than him. And I saw him withdraw in that time where really? I, she would be out in the garden talking to the neighbours over the wall. He withdrew. Um, and I think that was probably the start of something in his mind with regards to school. Does he agree? Not, not yet. Not yet. He's not ready to talk about it yet. He's still 14. He's not hugely, although he's so articulate, he's not ready to go there yet. It's It's been a really, really rough road for him. He's still healing. So we will talk. We will talk to him again about it all, but he's not ready. Um, I feel crowd-led learning is difficult after pandemic for these children. Yeah. Um, and I feel that has played a huge role in it. I might be wrong, well, there are tens of thousands of, there, of yeah. kids not showing up. And it's a big increase on what would exist before the pandemic. A lot of them are what we call school refusals. It's an ugly term. It's a really ugly because term. Because some of them are just, some of the kids are just saying, I don't want to go and you can't make me go. Uh, even though the parents are legally obliged to do it. It's, it's an impossible situation for so many people. In your case, you, your, your child, I suppose you would say that he just couldn't, he couldn't go. He couldn't go and he was at pains to tell us that. And he, he... The only the only way he knew to show us that he couldn't go was through these panic attacks. But he didn't get he didn't feel heard for nearly two years. And it's funny, only the other day he turned around after the article and I said, how do you feel? This was in the Irish Times. This was in the Irish Times. Yes. I said, how do you feel? We'd spoken about the article before I wrote it. And he said, I feel like you finally get it now. And he said, I want my education, but I couldn't get into school. And I said, sorry that we didn't hear you, but we had to keep trying because there was nothing else for you. And that broke our hearts. You know, we did a lot of research in that time. I Mm. I stopped work. My work were really good to me. And and you're in education. I'm in education. Tell us what you do. I'm an SNA. Um, they gave me parental leave, which was amazing because I couldn't leave him on his own at this point. And I hammered on doors. I phoned everybody I could think of. I wrote millions of letters, not millions. I wrote a lot of letters and I kept asking. I kept asking the questions. What What can we do for him? We cannot leave him in his room. You can't leave a 13-year-old in their room, developmentally. What, what were other parents saying to you at the beginning? Other parents who were going through the same thing? Well, other parents in general who are, are probably considering, look, tens of thousands of children were in the same boat, they were in lockdowns, well, they all had to go back to school I, and get I, on with it. Was I there think understanding a, or were there... No, I think other parents were relieved it wasn't theirs. Right. Um, the other parents who are going through the same, they're, they're hard to fish out because it's such a private thing. Yeah. We like we felt like we'd lost control of our son. We felt like we'd lost our son because he wasn't the same child. And there, there is shame attached to it. There isn't now, 
But what, what do you mean you can't get your child to go to school? What do you mean? They have to go to school. So you shut down. You, mm. you absolutely close down your bubble and you fight. And um, we eventually, the, our educational welfare officer got involved and she was superb. Right. She was really supportive. She did try to get him to go back to school, but I think she had to visually see his response to to understand, no, this this child cannot go through another day of this. So she introduced us to the iSchool programme. So the iSchool programme is an online-based learning programme offered for 13 to 16-year-olds. Okay. It's a charity-based service. They offer a level three QQI, which is the equivalent of the junior cert. So they have issues with funding. They only have so many spaces per year. Right. And this is a great service, particularly for it children who are very unwell, who, who physically can't. Get who physically school. can't. So you can do it online or you can do blended learning in local centres. Oh, right. So we applied for that for our son and we got refused. And... Um, what was the grounds for the refusal? Um, there is a huge criteria. The recommendations come straight from the educational welfare officers. Okay. You, everybody's at the end of the road when you're applying for this. Right. I mean, ideally, education and school are the best choice. Of course mm-hmm. they are. Nobody wants this. But when, when you have a child at home not doing anything for two years. You'll do anything. You'll do anything. Of course, yeah. So I got turned down, but I was at the end of my road, so I wasn't going to take it. No. Because I had hit a wall. We, we'd all hit a wall. My, there's four of us in the family. Um, I, I appealed and I won. So he started on that in January and he's a different child. Really? Yeah, we've got our son back. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. What are his days like now? So his days are he gets an inv- individualised lesson plan every morning and he submits his work. He gets daily interactions with the tutor and then he has a weekly video call with his mentor. Are the daily interactions in person? No, they're over the phone. He's doing phone. it online because there was no blended centre near us. So he's doing it online. So it should take between six months and a year for him to get his level three qualification then the mentors and iSchool will help him decide on what comes next. So he may go back to education. He may go to a training centre. He may go on to the institute or the academy or one of these kind of centres. I don't know, but there's someone else in our world helping us. But importantly, he's in education again. He's in education. What is the difference between before, uh, just before he begins iSchool and, and today? So before he began iSchool, he would stay in his room all day. Right. He had very little to talk about, Oliver. We have a dog and he would tell me about the dog all day. The postman and everything. That was his whole world. That was his world. His world is so... His world still is so small. That's a big yeah. concern, but... His his world was very small before, just before Christmas. And now he, I'm coming home and he's telling me about what he learned and what his goals are. There's, you know, there's discussion boards so he can, he can connect with people. They do movie nights online. 
they're they're in his world. Which there is a community there. There is a community. <laughs> He's he belongs again. Um, and obviously, since I've written the article in the newspaper, I've had a lot of pe- people reaching out. I had really? no idea there were so many children in our country going through this. I do have to say, Oliver, that they do offer home tuition hours at the end of the road. Uh, did you try that? My son did um, avail of them. Um, and they're super, don't get me wrong, but it's a, it's sitting at the kitchen table with a grown adult for two hours, three days a week. Yeah, It's ticking the box of a state exam. This was so beyond a state exam. How do you mean? I mean that he needed to belong again. Yes, he needed exactly. to feel relevant. Mm-hmm. He needed to feel accountable. He needed to enjoy life, enjoy learning. That he was back in the world again. He was back in the world. So how are things in, in the house now? Is everything... Things are good. There's... Things are good. We are so not out of the woods. It's mm-hmm. a very lonely road. It's a very unknown road. Yeah. Um, there's parallel lives going on with his peers who we would be friendly with. So that's not easy because obviously we're on the junior cert mocks at the moment, which is where he should be. But I have every confidence in him. Really? I have every confidence in him. I just need doors to be opened. I need it to not be a stigma. And I need people to just open their minds and understand that some kids can't do it. What doors would you like opened? The same doors as every other child. I want all the education doors open for him. The services have to be there and to, to acknowledge that this is... The, yeah, this and is ideally there needs to be more funding for the 13 to 16 year olds. He's not a child without interests. No, he's, he's Is he mad into sport? He's very mad into football. And did he manage to keep all of that going while he had the problem with school? Uh, in in the dark days, no. He, right. his, his mental health was, was bad. He He lost confidence in everything. But... Since we've called it a day and listened to him, he's back out there. He goes to the gym. He goes football. Really? Yeah. He is very into animals. So he does a huge amount with animals. He reads and he's writing books about animals. He walks a dog all the time. He's Once he knew he wasn't going to have to be forced to school, mm-hmm. his world just completely opened up again. It's There's no sign of it. He hasn't had a panic attack now in four or five months. So we are hopeful, but mm-hmm. we don't know what the future holds. It's early days. It's very early days. Never take it for granted because we, you and I get out of the car and go into work. Yeah. It's very hard to understand. I used to, we used to be in the car park and I used to say, you've just got to put one foot in front of the other. And he couldn't do it. And no one could tell me why. How have you been through all of this? Well, my husband and my daughter and me, it's, it's been really hard because mm. it, we didn't, it didn't, it became about getting him into school. Our, our whole lives became about getting him into school. So we all took a back seat Um it took a huge toll on my daughter who started secondary school this year. Um, but she's resilient and she's been so supportive to him. Um, but we were strong. Um, we're really close. We're so close. It's made us all Closer so now. close. <laughs> um, I have no doubt we're going to meet and hear from people um, who are in similar boat to yourself. What do you say to them? Don't be ashamed. 
let's find answers. Somebody's out there. Some, there is always somebody out there to help you. These kids need every opportunity they can have. They deserve an education. We just need to find out how to give it to them. Kerry, thank you so much for, for sharing this story. We hear statistics, but there's nothing quite like hearing the hard human story behind the whole thing. I wish you and your family well, and especially the young fella. Thank you. Uh, keep up the football and uh, more importantly, education. Thank you. But thank you so much. 51551, that's the text. Now, welcome back. I want to turn to the subjects because we've had uh, such a, an enormous reaction to the topic of school aversion or avoidance, as we're calling it, to the huge uh, growing and unexplained absences of children and teenagers. And uh, we thought it was necessary to find someone who might be able to offer some solutions. We'll come to that in a second. But I want to go through some of the uh, some of the emails to give you a flavour of what's been coming into us over the last couple of days. This is an email from a father. Uh, I too am that parent. Uh, my child has stopped going to school in fifth class, is now 15, should be doing their junior cert, but has not been in school since. It's a huge challenge to just keep going. My child was happy in primary school, but a switch just flipped. I've done everything for my child, uh, like Kerry, who spoke to us the other day. Two CAM centres, play therapy, psychologist, Tuzla, the National Educational Psychological Service, Education Welfare Officer. The list goes on and on. I've fought two to get my child into iSchool. That's the online tuition, I-S-C-O-I. L as an high school, the Irish for school. But I'm still searching for something that works. I'm tired of fighting and I feel like I've failed my child. And we've had a lot of people saying um, as well that this shouldn't be called school refusal. That is the official term, school refusal, when the teenagers' kids don't show up for more than 20 days for unexplained reasons. Um, but it's school avoidance, it's anxiety, and we don't want to put the blame on the child themselves. Another parent, another, uh, yeah, this is another email. My 14-year-old hasn't gone to school since the end of January of last year. I have tried everything. Bribery, dragging her, you name it. If she thinks she has to go to school, she's up all night with the panic attacks. If we get her to school, she gets to the door and starts to shake. She turns white and she vomits. She gets up every morning, has a shower, gets into her school uniform, but then just cannot go. And like most of the listeners who got in touch, um, that mother's also tried CAMS, Tuzla, all of those services uh, services in the agencies to try and get help. Another parent here, we have an 11-year-old who can't go to school. Awful anxiety, pains in the tummy, crying with pain outside the school. CAMS are inaccessible. The medical doctors just tell us it's anxiety, they cannot help. We're suffering as a family. He's missing his whole childhood. We feel hopeless sometimes. And we got an email from Nora. Nora says, many years ago, I was that child that you're talking about, unable to function at school, literally running away up the fields so I wouldn't have to go, feeling really guilty about the stress and pressure that I was putting my mother and my siblings uh, under. I hobbled along in secondary school. I left education at 15. No state exams done at all. A local businesswoman took me on at 16. This work gave me huge confidence. So I returned to my education in my early 20s, absolutely loved the course I was doing at Colossus Stefan Nefe in Cork, then went on to study animation at Ballyfermot College. Couldn't believe that formal education, something that had been so negative in my mind just seven years earlier, was now so positive, encouraging and transformative. It's not a reflection on the secondary school I attended, it's just the hole I fell into, couldn't find my way out of. And, and that's Nora Toomey from the animation company Kilkenny, uh, Kilkenny's Cartoon Saloon, a five-time Oscar-nominated company nominated for Golden Globes. They've won BAFTAs, Emmys. She's set it up with, with Paul Young and Tom Moore. Nora Toomey herself 
has an Oscar nomination for directing The Breadwinner in 2017. So obviously found enormous success. We asked her, could we share the email? She said, absolutely. And she wouldn't, said she wouldn't like to give the impression that it's uncomplicated and it's an individual issue. It would be good for parents and young people to know that there is life after this particular roadblock. It mightn't have awards or red carpets, but our communities need people like us uh, as much as the ones who manage to run on a straight path and get to the artificial finish line, as she calls it. Uh, it can get better for you too. Mind yourself, says Nora. So, look, that's a lovely message from Nora Toomey of Cartoon Saloon there. And we said, look, we'd have to find someone who might be able to offer some solutions to the parents who are exasperated out there and uh, find them some tips and things they can use and offer some coping techniques as well for the children and teenagers going through this. So, Brona Stars is a consultant psychotherapist and she deals directly with the school avoidance issues. And I spoke to her earlier this morning. Good morning to you, Brona. Um, we know that so many children and teenagers are anxious and that's a lot of the, the, the main cause here. But I gather you don't think it's helpful to try and find out exactly why they're anxious. Um, yes, that's right, Oliver. I think what, what happens is we get lost in the why and that's not important. The, what can we do about it is more important. There are so many complex parts to the answer as to why so many young people are anxious today um, and you can kind of get lost in that. Hmm. So what exactly is happening to uh, the children or the teenager when they don't want to go to school? Well, anxious children and teenagers are overthinkers. Um and their thought processes tend to be very, very negative. So yeah. their thoughts are typically shame-based about themselves. So I'm too fat, I'm too ugly, I'm too stupid, I'm going to fail, I can't do this. And they're very typically fear-based about the world. So if I can't talk to people, bad things might happen. What if something bad happens to mom or me? Um, and that's very heartbreaking for parents to bear witness to such a negative self-experience. And the thing about anxiety is that our brains can't conceive of the difference between a fantasy and an experience. So these kids are overthinking negative scenarios and their bodies are responding like it's actually happening. So this leads to an over-release of a stress chemical called cortisol. So these kids, their bodies are just saturated with cortisol and this causes inflammation and creates all sorts of issues. Like, um, you know, their GI tract, there's food intolerance, there's viral issues, sore tummies, and then respiratory constriction. So there's the panic attack happening, the tightness in the chest, skin sensitivity, maybe eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, and an overthinking brain which can't switch off. So these kids experience insomnia. They have great trouble falling asleep and staying asleep and they have stress headaches and they feel faint. And what happens is the thought of school becomes nightmarish for them. Right. And um, they, as soon as they, you know, maybe the night before, they're like, right, I'm really going to go tomorrow. I'm really going to go. But when the prospect of school becomes very real, their stress levels surge and their overthinking just gets the better of them. It hits, so it hits the Richter kids, scale. So the, the cortisol, I mean, that's surging through the system and it literally causes the constriction of all your airwaves. And that's the panic attack that a yeah. lot of parents who've been on to us saying uh, they're witness. It's very, it's terrifying for the parents. It is. Never mind the kids themselves. Terrifying. It, it's very, very powerless for parents to watch your kids struggling and to not really know what to do. Um, or usually what happens is, uh, you know, for these kids, their their baseline stress level is about a nine out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And in order for parents to know what to do, it's really helpful for them to realise which strategies aren't working. So, you know, when parents come to my office, there are typically two parenting strategies that they present with. And the first one is reassuring. That's the big one for anxious kids. And, you know, this kid's scared of going to school and mom or dad will say, don't worry, you'll be fine. It'll be okay. Why don't Mm -hmm. you just try it? And nothing bad's going to happen. That seems like the the obvious place to start, doesn't it? The reassurance. It 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 does. Okay. However, if you got a, a bill for ten grand this morning and you're terribly stressed about it, and um, I'll reassure you right now, but look, don't worry about it, Oliver. It's fine, yeah. and the universe will provide. It's and as long as your health's there, and um, in the moment, that will actually create comfort for you. But as soon as I walk out of the room, you're left with that anxiety and rumination. So the the reassuring helps in the moment. Yeah. But it no, actually no, doesn't was, solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. You said there were two other, there's another strategy as well after the reassuring. Yeah, so building up the kids' confidence and self-esteem. These, these kids, um, they tend to feel very inadequate and unacceptable because they have no faith in themselves. So these kids usually struggle with low confidence and parents try to boost this. You know, you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you're so capable and you're so confident. Yeah. But it's like it just runs off them. They just kind of tolerate that and that doesn't work either. You know, telling somebody why they should feel good about themselves won't make the person feel good about themselves. And so neither of these um, strategies work and parents feel incredibly powerless then. Mm. Now, I know you have some strategies, but before we come to the strategies to to help people, uh, some of our callers Mm -hmm. are saying that these panic attacks and the stress about school and anxiety happens very, very suddenly, sometimes overnight, and that they say the children were doing fine before that. Is that possible or are there warning signs that people should look out for? It's hard to know. Sometimes it comes on very suddenly. Yeah, the symptoms come on, but the experience of anxiety has probably been there at a low level. Not so much anxiety is a symptom of something bigger. And the bigger thing is that this kid has no faith in themselves, um, is fear-based, and um, and needs a lot of comfort in the world. So, for example, when COVID hit, there was a lot of young people who lived in a kind of comfort zone, but they could manage going to school and they could manage going out to the world and talking to people. But after COVID, I mean, the government said, you cannot leave your comfort zone. You have got to stay there. So they got really entrenched in their comfort zone. And a number of months later, the school's, opened okay kids come back into school and they weren't able to leave their comfort zone so mm. we've we've had um you know we had epidemic levels beforehand but now it's just got to ridiculous um levels like i was talking recently to a school principal in Tipperary. there's 430 kids in the school and he said on any given day there are 100 children absent and that's almost all of them are anxiety based so, um, it's extraordinary it is numbers. Spectacular now. Yeah, yeah extraordinary. Are, are, are we seeing the same in the north of Ireland? Because obviously there were different styles of lockdowns and so on, uh, north and south. Just the same. It's actually same. a global phenomenon. Really? Yeah. Um, I want to ask about the strategies that we can employ because the kid is stressed, the cortisol is, is surging through their system, they're having the panic attacks, mm. their stress levels are up uh, off the Richter scale and so on. What can parents do? So the, the first thing you, you mentioned there, Oliver, about, you know, maybe the night before someone gets really um, stressed, trying to manage stress levels in the moment can be very difficult. So going for the long term is better. So 
it turns out that cortisol, that stress chemical, is contagious. So stress kids equals stress parents. Um, mm. And the whole family become, begins to swim in the sea of cortisol. So the first step is to lower cortisol levels, the parents first and then the kids. So just Google how to lower cortisol levels. There is a ton of things you can do. Yoga is excellent, but you have to do it every day. And there's a really great strategy called TTT, trauma tapping technique. Just remember those three letters mm-hmm. and you'll find the resources online. That's literally, literally tapping, day. is it? Tapping, yeah. yeah. And you you do it maybe a dozen times a day. So, you know, when the kid comes down in the morning, they've got the uniform on and they're really, you know, their, their stress level is extremely high and, and it's, you know, is he going to be able to go to school? Is he not? Instead of all the reassurance, do the tapping. Um, it works by calming the nervous system. Um, the diving reflex is another one. It's great and it's a great preventative strategy for panic attacks. So you fill a bowl of ice cold cold water and immerse your face um, and do that a few times holding your breath and you know if someone's having a panic attack and they they do the diving reflex that'll knock a panic attack out of anybody you know it's a great one to do and you're saying that the parents Um, should try this even before it's a bit like uh, in in a in an airplane you have to put on your own mask before you assist the children sort of thing isn't it that you absolutely manage your own Um, stress I mean parents when when you've reached the stage where you're kid isn't able to go to school because it's it's school based anxiety. This uh, these parents, their stress levels are off the Richter scale and they're desperate. They're trying every parenting strategy possible. And often parents will adopt two parenting strategies. So one parent um will become the comfort parent, do all the reassuring, all building up the confidence. And the other parent sees that that's not working. So they will try the no-nonsense approach. And actually that sets up a dynamic of a lot of stress and conflict between parents. Um, and one of my hunches is that that's, that's a big reason for a lot of parental separation these days because the parents yeah. get entrenched and keep um, arguing and being in conflict around strategies to support this kid. You know, you're too soft and the kid will, if you would do this. And, and again... It's an expression of powerlessness. Nobody really knows what to do. So um, incorporating um, cortisol-lowering strategies into daily life so that the kid's baseline of stress lowers from about a a 9.5 out of 10 to about a 7. Because when your stress levels are at 9.5 out of 10 and there's something stressful on the horizon, um, like, for example, being faced with the prospect of having to go to school, there's only one direction you can go, and that's into overwhelm. Um, so these kids go into fight or flight and they're hyperactivated um, and that thought of school just feels utterly terrifying. So if, if you have a kid who's, um, who's at that level, nine and a half out of ten, they're not going to school. It's just, it's just going to be um, almost traumatising for them. And just to be clear, the, the, the trauma tapping technique is literally you're just tapping your fingers against your opposite hand or in your head? You are. Different um, versions, are there's, there? Yeah. Yeah, you'll find it on YouTube. You'll find all lots of stuff right. if you just Google TTT. Um, and it basically they're clusters of nerve endings that you you're you're um, stimulating. They go to the central nervous system, which goes to that fight or flight part of the brain. It goes, shh, you're okay, you're safe, calm down. It's very, it's much more powerful than a mother or father telling you that you're okay because it, it's coming from your own central nervous system. Now you mentioned this comfort zone which is where the kids seek out obviously this is um, doing the opposite to the hard stuff which is going to school 
and um, their yeah. comfort zone, it becomes very small. It does. So the, the, the comfort zone, um, basically these kids find an antidote to the stress chemical cortisol, which is an oxytocin. So they become oxytocin addicts. They're just, their life becomes defined by what gives me comfort and what doesn't. And if it doesn't, I'm not interested. So the comfort zone becomes increasingly restricted over time and they start pulling back from social situations and activities and interests. Um, and then the, the comfort zone becomes so small that geographically it's simply their bedroom and maybe screens and right. a family pet and maybe one comfort parent and maybe even particular foods like a lot of them it's like pasta and butter and chicken goujons and that's it. Um, and it's heartbreaking for a parent to watch your kid live this tiny restricted life mm. when you know they have such incredible potential. So how do, we, again, how do we enlarge? Zone, yeah, how do we enlarge the comfort zone and get them out of it? So, um, well, actually getting back to school is a level two intervention. You need to firstly focus on level one. So um, encourage your kids, for example, to concentrate. Um, So often when people are not at school, they don't concentrate. So if they're phobic about academic work, get them to read a novel, build a jigsaw, do a bit of art. Um, It's possible that long-term absenteeism means that your kids lost quite a a bit of capacity to concentrate and school will feel impossible if they're not able to do that. So it's also very good for the developing brain. So get also get kids out in nature. It's a brilliant way to reduce stress um, and get them out of the physical comfort zone. This is a wonderful time of the year now with a stretch in the evenings to get out walking. Very good, yeah. Um, another thing is remove all screens from bedrooms at night and that's an absolute must. No screens, okay. So that's the, that's the no tough love screens. part, isn't it? You have to ban all that the is, and yeah. and really for a developing brain, you shouldn't have a screen when you're sleeping within six meters of your brain. Wow! Um, and most kids leave and um, sleep with it either under the pillow or right beside them in the bedside locker. Um, and insomniac teenagers and, and most anxious kids are insomniacs. Um, they can spend hours online in the middle of the night, and um, mm. so that'll perpetuate the insomnia. But it'll also diminish the possibility of attending school the following day. Like, if you haven't gone to bed till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to get up at 8.30 to get out to school. Um, so keep focus on those level one things. Yeah, um, they're, they're, good in, they're great interventions and yeah. they're, they're useful tips for, uh, for, for parents out there, Brona. Thanks a million. I know you're doing a webinar as well for parents Parenting Anxious Teenagers, that's, that's what it's called, and that's next week. That's right. That's next Wednesday. Um, and the registration link will be on social media if you just look for me on social Your media. Your social media, Brona Stars. Um, it's a memorable name. should be easy to find, but I worry <laughs> your webinar on Wednesday, the 6th of March, might be overwhelmed. Parenting Anxious Teenagers. teenagers. Thank you so much, Brona. Thanks, Thanks for your help. Oliver. The Texas 51551. Oliver Callan on RTE Radio 1. Uh, we're in studio with uh, playwright and actor Emmett Kerwin. Good morning. He's um, You're going to bring Dublin Old School. The play is coming back for its 10th anniversary. 10th anniversary to the it's Olympia Theatre. Yeah. It's 10 years. 10 years, yeah. It started uh, yeah, in, in Beauty's Cafe and now it's uh, going to the... That was upstairs. It was upstairs, yeah, in the old Beauty's, um, which I think is back there now. But yeah, looking forward to it. Remind us of Dublin Old School. What was the what was the idea behind it? How did it come about so in your head? The idea was based around two brothers um, who hadn't seen each other in like three or four years who were estranged. Um, one of them is homeless and stumbling and the other brother who is a DJ is kind of careering through Dublin on this wild weekend and then bumps into his brother who he hasn't seen in about three or four years. And then they reconnect over the course of the weekend while in the midst of all these parties and raves. So it was kind of something that was about, I suppose, 
I wanted this is highfalutin language now an anthropological look at the <laughs> dance music and youth culture of Ireland at that particular time which yeah. was in the post-crash kind of period and then what it meant about drugs and drug addiction I suppose and how kind of things like that affect families you know Keeping the sessions going wasn't that the Yeah sort of... that's it I say all that now but it is it is an out and out comedy You hear a producer in my ear going tell them it's funny you the, know The best uh, comedy which has the truth in there Yeah yeah, yeah. And, and just that thing of how brothers needle each other and family needles each mm. other and kind of gives each other a hard time and, and say things to each other that you know they would never say to anybody else what did the play say about uh, drugs and drug culture in Dublin at that time? I think because it was written, it's kind of loosely set in the post-crash era. So there's a lot of references to people dancing in the ruins of emptiness or you know things that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So at the time, similar to what's happening now, it's about the attitude towards people who do hard drugs and find themselves homeless and then the people that do what are called party drugs. So there's a difference or a moralising that happens with one drug being okay, socially accepted, and another drug being completely not accepted, you know? So about that hypocrisy that exists to how we treat different addicts. Who do we think is doing the... Um, uh, who has the different attitudes between the two? Yeah, I don't know. I think... It's middle-class drug-taking versus... Yeah, but I think that, that, that's been... That kind of class barrier has been completely destroyed. And I think even in the last like 15 years, apparently, you know what I mean? You see what the kind of attitudes towards drug taking are now or, or drug taking, that's the word I'd use. The types of drugs that are being taken, you know, are, are across the board, you know. Mm-hmm. They've, uh, uh, it's across all of society now. Yeah, all of society, like from, you know, all of society. I suppose the, the dance music scene, as it was described in the play in the early 1990s, was about, you know, um, ecstasy tablets and stuff like that <clears throat> and how middle class kids and working class kids were both taking those drugs and coming together but now you know a lot of right. drugs and the attitudes towards drugs I think is around cocaine and stuff you know yeah which used to be the kind of rich people that's it drug yeah. wasn't it but now it's, uh, it's just yeah. so widespread um, the great thing that people loved about this play uh, 2014 was that it's uh, it was really Dublin wasn't it this yeah. really told the story of true Dublin what was going on in the aftermath of, of the crash is it completely is that now a legacy thing kind of is yeah, is yeah. It really like a lot of the venues that are mentioned in the play don't exist anymore right the nightclubs nightclubs yeah and a lot of them you know saying that would have just sprung up as a result of there was an abandoned building so let's put something here while nobody else wants to use it give it utility but yeah the, the city is completely changed completely changed it's kind mm. of now a timepiece or a time capsule, I should say, about Dublin at a particular point in history. Yeah. I, I remember that kind of post-crash. There was lots of independent restaurants. It was, it was an exciting time. Yeah. Despite everyone, you know, the doom and gloom of it being recession and, and people streaming out of the country and so Somebody, on. Somebody, yeah. There was a, one guy said to me, there's loads of holes in the dance floor, you know, of places where people used to be and uh, there was people left behind. So you either had a choice, you stayed and did a DIY thing in terms of what you wanted to make or do or you emigrated, you know, at that time. I suppose because the rents were cheap for the commercial enterprises yeah. and for the people who were obviously going to them and that, that has been upended. Entirely. That lasted about five years. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Halcyon days of cheap rent. Yeah, about five. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. And it starts in 2014, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of starts kicking back up. So um, there's a lot of talk about the state of Irish arts and culture and you you seem to say because it's a timepiece. Yeah. I mean, how bad? You you usually have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the art scene. I'm a dad now though, Oliver, so <laughs> yeah, okay, right. I'm not hip to the game anymore. Not cool with the kids. Uh, None of your uh, age group are. None of my age group. They're all kind of talking about 
the new Dune is out. You know, like in way. <laughs> it's in IMAX. That's, That's the most the exciting it's going to get for me. Yeah, I'm going to see that thing and big screen, baby. Um, well, yeah, like thousands of venues have closed mm. in the last 10 years um, because of onerous licensing laws um, for multitude costs, rents, insurance. So the scene has, young people are finding themselves in a changed landscape, not even knowing what the city would have been 10 years ago because they would have been teenagers or if they're in their 20s now, Wouldn't they're, they're yeah. trying to make entertainment for themselves. They're trying to have a youth culture similar to what other generations have had and they, they're not able to do that because those places don't exist. And when they try to make their own parties or put the wrong parties on, they find themselves getting shut down, you know. So the landscape has totally changed and you need a vibrant youth culture if we are to, one, maintain young people staying here in this country and not having them emigrate by the thousands. It's not just about jobs, it's not just about accommodation. They also have to have um, a cultural identity that they can latch onto. They have to have places to go to. And if you mm. remove all of those cultural spaces where they can be young people safely, um, you're not really you're creating a hostile space for them I don't think they're creating a hostile space the hostile space is being created because of inefficacy and and just not getting on with changing licensing laws the way they should do yeah the government has said they, they're they planning they to do have, that they have and give us, yeah. give us the night are the main group that is, is campaigning for that the overhaul of licensing laws the overhaul of uh, do they uh, represent times. the clubs and, and dance they do yeah it? and they're, they're a good bunch of people Sunil Sharp is a, is, a, is a DJ who has been spearheading that campaign for nearly 20 years now so that's how long that lobbying group has been well they're not lobbying group but they have been knocking at the door of the government to do something take serious action and if you go to their website you can see all the great ideas they have like a nighttime mayor um, you know how people get licences and how we use cultural spaces. It's not just about alcohol or giving people late licences. It's about p- keeping places open till six, you know. Yeah, and the Department of Justice, they've, um, they've put together some pilot schemes, haven't they, that seem to have worked very well? Yeah, they have. But um, but there, there, there's a the serious overhaul of the Dance Hall Act. Um, that the is 1935 35, yeah, Dance Hall Act, Act yeah. which we were just talking about This is about all before. the opening hours and licensing yeah. issues, isn't well, it? Well, essentially, in the 1930s, the, the bishops and uh, the Gaelic League thought that large gatherings of young people was leading to the moral turpitude of the nation and it was based around things like foreign dancing set dancing anti-jazz campaign Um, there were marches against jazz yeah Uh, Yeah. down down with jazz down with paganism paganism they alluded to both of them so those laws not that you know anything like that is in the statute book but that's the world that influenced that particular set of laws and they are still the same laws that now govern us and govern licensing and govern our nightlife and govern our culture so mm. it's it, they're anachronistic they're archaic they need to be completely overhauled and uh, the government has some ideas it doesn't go far enough I don't think but uh, they could really help out um, a lot of struggling bands music venues cultural uh, venues theatres you know we need a vibrant life and we just need to bring ourselves in line with what's happening in Europe Do the, um, the, the, new, the new laws that would allow nightclubs to be allowed open till 6am would yeah. that help? I think so because staggered opening times can only be a good thing um, for the city but also it's not just about allowing people to keep getting alcohol like you know 4 or 5 in the morning uh, these places can be cultural centres that open during the daytime as well yeah. and then can go on the idea that you know, we're one of the only cities in Europe that when DJs or bands come here, they're told at half one or two o'clock, get off the stage. That's a stop, you yeah. know, we have, we just, by doing this, we would just be bringing ourselves into line with what our European neighbours have been doing for 50 years. So we're behind. They dance here. all day at the dance weekends, all, yeah. don't they? That's yeah. it. The co- the yes, conference. absolutely. And it's not all just about alcohol. It's just about having a place of culture that people can go to 
that they might want to stay in, you know. Um, the nightclub industry, I mean, it's synonymous with drugs, unfortunately, isn't it? The club mm. scene, the dancing, all of that. I think it used to be. I think this generation are, they drink less. They don't smoke yeah. as much. Yeah. I know people might scoff at that idea, but like, it's, I think that moral panic of the 1990s has never gone away and I don't think it's That's all... That's all teenagers will do drugs and destroy their lives. But is this that? is the same arguments they used in the 1930s. You know, so there's always a folk devil that children essentially allowed, not children, but you know, young people allowed to congregate are going to get up to no good. I think they're adults. I think we need to allow them to, if they want to go to dance venues, that, you know, discriminating against a particular form of dance music because there's a fear that something will proliferate it there. That's not borne out in evidence, really, I don't think. Mm. Uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs and the outcome, you would agree largely with that? If yeah, and I think... It's to turn it into a health issue rather than a... It should a be a health-led... Um, it should be a health-led issue. All of the things that were put forward have been agreed upon. It's just a case of the government legislating for that. That's... I think that's a long way away, though. Just... I, just I, as the licensing laws are, I mean, yeah. they, were prom- they were announced in 2020 and we're still waiting for those uh, licensing laws yeah. to be... Uh, they were actually uh, Helen McAtee the Justice Minister promised to enact the extension of opening hours and to make outdoor seating on a permanent footing it was the end of February which we're at the 26th yeah. of February now maybe that will get done this week Hopefully, but that's what they're yeah. promising by the summer um, I, I think sometimes yeah I think with, I, I can understand sometimes with the licensing laws there's a fear that in small communities a, a weather spoons is going to open on the the edge of town and basically swamp all the local pubs, you know. Yeah. So there's a reason there. That's mm. that, I think that's possibly something that's jamming up the gears of the movement on that. Like so, you know, because small pubs are centres of communities, and if they are centre of the community, then maybe they should be protected against kind of huge. They're uh, suffering for sure, and a lot of the public, and particularly in rural areas, would say it's drink driving. Yeah, uh, legislation so on, but it probably is also connected to just a huge societal change where the dads and you'll have experience in this. Yeah, they used to just go to the pub. Their lives didn't change at all when the children arrived, did they? they yeah. Now it's very different. Very different. I think yeah. I'd be like every once a year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm allowed out now. Yeah, it is. I think there's a huge cultural difference and a cultural shift. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. You know, look again. I'm just an artist, like talking about these things. Are just <laughs> half, half you ideas. Are not living in the real world. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like Normal people. Yeah. Uh, how long are you, Dad? I am a dad. My son is nearly two. Nearly two. So okay. two years. Things are settling down. Yeah, then, yeah. Sleep still, is regulated. Not really. Not really. Oh, really? I still have that wild-eyed early dads kind of thing. You know, <laughs> where people ask me questions, I'm like, "What day is it?" I called a nappy a banana yesterday. So <laughs> right, I goes, okay. "I'll put this banana on you now." And I was like, and then I said something else. I used the word banana for something. So I think my uh, cognitive abilities are deteriorating for the day, Oliver. Three uh, nappies and mashing bananas. Yeah, that's it. One, yeah. one activity. Don't know. know what's what. What's up and what's down. <laughs> But it's great, obviously. No, it is. I'm, I am absolutely, uh, yeah, I love being a dad. It's amazing. So that decade went from you being the artist, hip to the scene. And even um, then I was a how-do, <laughs> how-do fellow kids. <laughs> I think I, was, I might have been even a bit old then. Uh, yeah, you know, I sw- yeah, maybe. Maybe it's, uh, the, the club scene is fine. You just haven't seen it. <laughs> It is. It always is. That's it is. Every, every generation lives a different type of youth. It was yeah. mentioned some of those clubs actually have closed down. Uh, the ten yeah. nightclubs said they're mentioned in Dublin Old School, Tripod, Red Box, Re yeah. Raw, the yeah. Temple Theatre, the Temple Theatre as well. Yeah. yeah, I remember that one in my day when I went to DC. That was brilliant. Yeah, Bondi Beach Club in the south side. Never went to that now. Barcode. That's uh, was, that's was the north. That was the north side version of it. Beside wasn't it? the big gym there. Yeah. Yeah. 
The Kitchen. Was that one of the Clarence? That was one of the Clarence, yeah. I think I was kind of a bit young for that as well. I don't never... Yeah, and Andrew's Lane, which of course is Andrew's Lane was brilliant, which is now... An apartment hotel. hotel. There you go. Well, that's what happens. We keep on tearing down all the cultural centres and turning them into hotels. That's what the post-crash was Uh, all about. Yeah. What about Dublin now? I mean, uh, I know your dad, but you do get to see the city the odd time, I'm sure. Yeah, well, look, I live... A lot of talk about it being just, like, not a place to go to anymore, but obviously... Tens of thousands of people still do. They still do, yeah. I lived in the city for 20 years and I lived in Temple Bar for about seven years. So I really seen... Right. Yeah, I really seen the city change um, from 2014 just up to COVID. So it's seen, yeah, big changes in the city. Oh, where did you grow up in? I grew up in Tala. You grew up in Tala? Yeah. Which people in Tala sometimes don't call it Dublin as much, do they? Tala it's its own thing. Yeah, it's its own thing. But that's I think that happens, you know, even like plays and doing a play in... January and somebody was worried about we're putting it on a town and in Tala and mm. the person was like don't be worried about that those two are you know people are totally they're going to go to see it in Tala they're not going to journey all the way into Brilliant town theater you know? out there, isn't yeah it? it's an amazing theatre that's the civic theatre mm. uh, it's an incredible theatre great uh, lineup of shows for people but um, I think yeah if the place is kind of uninviting um, or if people don't feel safe in it they're not going to come in you know what is kind of the essence of Dublin now if that's not a really you know preposterous question I don't know <laughs> You don't know because you're not... I don't know. Well, like, I suppose that thing, like cities or places kind of mean different things to different people. So True. the idea that you could give one singular idea what the city represents or what it is, I don't know. There's Maybe. no... It seemed to be easier years ago, didn't it? Yeah, possibly, yeah. Maybe I, not even then. Not even then. I suppose it, it is different to different people, things that mean different things. You they know? were jazzing in one part of the city. Yeah, well, that was what we were just saying, yeah, <laughs> that the league said, uh, this station playing jazz music and the Minister for Finance at the time was jazzing Every night. <laughs> I think jitterbugging as well was, yeah, 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 yeah. was a major concern of, <laughs> of the bishops of the Gaelic League. Do, do you still love Dublin? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It usually, it's a major part of any play that I write. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it becomes, because it's what you know and the characters that are there are the ones that are most easily accessible. So I write about Dublin all the time. Um, someone told me I should stop, you know. <laughs> they were like, maybe get a new get a new beat, you know. Oh. But that's, yeah, It's it's. I think all writers will write about what they know and the experiences that they have. So, like, I've lived in London and I lived there, so that's really kind of it, you know, to go out the draw. What is it that you love about Dublin? Um, I think, well, obviously it's people, a turn of phrase, um, the language of Dublin yeah. and how... Yeah, how language is a thing that's ever evolving and ever changing and really speaks to a person's culture and their background and their heritage and there's a multitude of different forms of accents and sounds and the stories that the city tells constantly, you know, are the things that really drive think, me to write about it and so much. I think it's amazing how resistant accents in Ireland are to yes. this globalisation, yeah, internet, social media, a whole lot. I mean, we sometimes complain that everyone sounds American now, but they don't really. They don't really. They, they, I wrote a show uh, that was on last year and it's coming back in January. It's called Accents. Yeah. And, you know, accents are, you get, your accent, your base accent is whatever comes out of your mouth when you're angry. Or when you're talking to your peer group. So young kids, when they're watching American television or Australian television, Bluey, for example, might have that kind of sound. Yeah. But when they start school, their accent or what their core accent will become is whatever their peer group was that they went to school with. So it usually comes with all these different things. So accents are always changing, constantly changing. There's a multitude of influences. And external influences like television does actually influence. But primarily it will be 
formed by their experiences with their peer group in school. So it's a unique thing that speaks to their life, you know. So it's yeah. something to be celebrated as opposed to dismissed. Um, but language is always changing, like what the Dublin accent is now compared to what it was 100 years ago. So when people get kind of, you know, bent Do you, looked at, you looked at this obviously when you're doing your play? You yeah, play. yeah. The, the play Accents is, um, I, I did a play with a, a musical artist called uh, Own French who performs as... Talos, he's from Cork, and he wrote a, a beautiful score for a play that I did called Accents, which was a multitude of uh, poems about 12 hours, set 12 hours before the birth of my son. So it's yes. about the working class communities from Dublin, how they've moved out and out and out, and how the accents have changed, and what your accent is, what your grandparents' accent was, or parents, and then possibly what your son or child or daughter, uh, their accent would be. So, um, yeah, so I looked into it. Yeah, a lot. You know, there's a lot of study. Is it in good shape, the the Dublin accent? I think it is, yeah. I think, you know, all of those accents that come in from other places around the world influence the accent. Mm. So it changes constantly. And you'll hear loads of lovely new sounds and new voices. So, you know, the accent, there is a difference between an accent from South Inner City to Crumlin to Tala. Very minute, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you know. But but if you listen, you know, any. because uh, I thought the kind of Brendan Behan accent Yeah It was sort of dead But I've heard it in places You will Weirdly in kind of places where There, there are social housing in posh areas of Dublin Like right, in Black yeah. Rock Yeah And down yeah. there and Which, which is sometimes forgotten about Donny Brook And yeah. if you hear them Those those people talking yeah. You'll get there's, uh, there's kind of, it's a An old fashioned Dublin accent Diptongs thrown into words like uh, we, were, we didn't have much money But we were poor As yeah, opposed yeah. to when Tala They say we didn't have much money But we were poor so there's just a straight delongation of those two vowel sounds together, kind of just rolled together. So that, that diphthong has kind of been lost. And you'll find maybe a man or a woman that are in their 60s or 70s from a traditional working class um, a community that have, you know, lovely accents, uh, real clear voice, and they say things like that, book. Or, you know, yeah, as my mother right. says, she says, it actually is book because there's two O's there. <laughs> she says, book is actually B-U-K. Yeah, and right. I said, ma'am, you know it's what? I cannot fault your logic. It is book. It's somebody saying, uh, nobody wants to be working. This is about nightclubs. The texts oh, yeah. are coming in. Nobody wants to be working in a nightclub till 7 or 8 a.m. They won't get anyone to work those shifts, says Dan and Cork. Dan mustn't, must know it all. I would say there's a lot of students out there be putting yeah. the hand <laughs> off, putting the hand off your extra shifts. Extending opening hours are not required. There's no one in the country pubs except on Saturdays and Sunday until 8 p.m. on Sunday. Sundays. Again, there are plenty of exceptions to that. I'd say the same major. Um, yeah, anyway. A great nightclub conversation. Maybe the right moment to pay respects to Jean Crowley, the legendary Dubliner who was well known in the capital's nightclub scene. Oh, lovely. Queen of the high club scene at Lily's Bordello, who passed away last week. That's from Sarah. Oh. Yes, Jean from Lily's. Yes, that would be known to a set yeah. in Dublin around. Uh, it's, it's gone now, Lily's Bordello. It's, well, it's still a club. Is it still there? I think it's called something else now. Yeah, I think the See, name this is, is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm, we wouldn't I'm just, know. I don't wouldn't have my know. finger on the pulse. Um, Please tell Emmett I enjoyed his brief with no less memorable role as the Irish Catholic priest in the film Freud's Last Session opposite opposite Anthony Hopkins. Did he see that? Well, I haven't even seen that yet. Matthew Thank Good. you. <laughs> yeah. uh, identifying the statue of Bridget in his church. I saw the file as part of, I saw the film as part of this year's Dublin International Film Festival yesterday afternoon. Excellent. Seeing it. I've seen it. Looking yeah. forward to Dublin Old School again. That was Spectrum nice, yeah. Anthony Hopkins. Lovely no, could, you could have called it Dublin Old School again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Emma Kerr is such a talent I saw his show Accents in The Mermaid last year it was so brilliant thank you very much will you do that one again I'd be Accents is coming back for a nationwide tour it's coming to the Project Art Centre in January of next year brilliant. and then it's going to Cork uh, Tala Limerick Galway 
You're busy, busy. Busy, busy. And then old school, obviously, is in the Olympia in September. And Freud's last session last session, I think it's coming out, out soon, yeah. isn't it? I think, I think it's coming yeah. out soon, yeah. yeah Freud's last session. Do you hanging out with him at all? Did I was, yeah. Lovely man. He's yeah. uh, so, like, chatty and lovely and, and want, you know, loves the chats. You know, a lot of, <laughs> like, you know, a lot of actors would be, uh, especially some, like, people are annoying them. Yeah, like, he's just sitting there, hey, Emmett, you know, I'm not going to do his accent now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait a minute, it's good to see you. Hello, Emmett. No, I <laughs> Uh, he was yeah, but he was so nice, and I was like, he was asking me about things, and he was really interested. He was telling me stories about Peter O'Toole and Peter O'Toole's bodyguard and Bray Go in the Royal. Just telling me just just great stories about kind of working in Ardmore in the sixties. I think he came over here, and I think he might he worked somewhere maybe the Gaiety or the Olympia. He did Borsal Boy. You were saying about Brendan Bean, and he did. Yeah, so he was back and forth here in the 60s um, before, he, um, while he was in the National, just before he became obviously a huge star. Yeah. But um, what a lovely man. Sounds so talent. Oh, yeah, yeah. And loads of stories. It was great. He was chatting away about different films that he'd done and, and asking me then as well. I was like, what's your background? You know, yeah, brilliant. Sound guy. That is class. We have to let you go because you're going off oh, somewhere, yeah, aren't you? You're going oh, yeah. off to, can you say where you're going? Yeah, I'm going to We Feel Prison to do a poetry reading. So you're doing poetry reading with, with prisoners? Yeah. Um, is this something you do a good bit? No. Not too much, no. Um, okay. Lynn Rowan, uh, Senator Lynn Rowan, asked me to come out. Uh, oh, great. So yeah, she does a podcast, um, and uh, it's in relation to that. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. Okay, let you know. I think we kept you later than we, we promised. Sorry about oh, that. Oh no, Evan, you're but grand. Thanks a million so, for that. But old school, double old school here. is coming back. Uh, it's going to be in the Olympia in September. In September, and tickets are on sale. They're on sale right now. At Ticketmaster.com. Ticketmaster, all of that. You'll find it. Emma Currens, but a pleasure. We we'll let you go. Thanks, thanks Oliver. Five one five five one. That's the text. Email oliver at rte.ie you're very welcome back. Now, Aaron Sunderland Carey is in studio with us. He's one of many artists featuring in a campaign being run by the Arts Council. It's called Show Up. That's the name of it, isn't it, Aaron? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And you want to encourage um, teenagers, but it's 16 to 24 year olds, uh, yeah. which you're in that bracket, are you? Are you in, yeah, I'm 23, yeah. You're 23 uh, to engage in the art. You're an artist yourself. Um, so tell us about your style of art and what you do. Yeah, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Not uh, at all, you're welcome. you're welcome. Uh, yes, I'm winning Aaron and I'm a mixed media artist. Yeah. Uh, I work in socially engaged art mainly. So that means we kind of work with groups, kind of designated groups or individual people that are of interest or relate to the themes in which we want to work with. So I've worked with a lot of youth clubs and schools. Um, I would have got my start in Rialto Youth Project, working with young men from the Dolphins Barnes flats. Yeah. Um, in Dublin eh? and we would have worked on different projects around masculinity and, and things like that and uh, that's kind of the good timing kind of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what, uh, what age group are the, the kids that you would have been working with well that group in particular was 6th class and 4th year so they were around 12 at the time oh, yeah, um, I've since been back to do a bit of work with them but I work with a whole range of people like the last project I'd done was 2nd class boys so they were they were probably seven about around that oh, right. age mark so all the way up until about six years and you're doing this from, from college were you some of the previous ones yeah yeah so uh, I went to NCAD and during my third year in NCAD I'd done the Dublin 8 neighbourhood residency with Fiona Wheel, who is a socially engaged artist and she's brilliant um, and she would have been my, my lecturer she would have taught me kind of some of this and introduced me to Real You Project and I, I would have stemmed from there and I've continued to do that sort of work it's not, the, it's not the easiest place to get into the world, is it? The National College of Art and Design. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> Serious not. Serious <laughs> art. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not meant to be the easiest anyway. No. Um, I, I kind of came out of school and I'd done a PLC course. I kind of wasn't sure of where I was going to go when I came out of school. Yeah. Um, but I had an interest in art. So there was kind of some people saying to me, you know, maybe look into this PLC. 
to make a portfolio of work to get into art college, but I wasn't too sure about that as well. Around that time, um, I got in contact with the Axis in Ballymun with the John Duffy Youth Arts Bursary. Someone sent that to me. They said, there's a thing of the Axis here. They're looking to give someone a bit of money for art. They weren't really sure what it was, but they knew it was an opportunity of some sort. So I looked into it and uh, I applied. And Mark at the time, who was the director at the time, and uh, now, now it's Nave. Uh, they looked at my work, they liked what I'd done, I'd been just right. doing some work at home and they gave me a bursary and a space to work and Brilliant. to make some art and I used that and the encouragement that gave me and the little bit of funding that, that gave me, I went and done a PLC course to try and make a portfolio and I used the two of them kind of at the same time to build a body of work in order to get into NCAD. When you have the enthusiasm and the talent, the, the help is, is there around the place. Yeah. Can you tell us um, where did you go to school and uh, what was that experience like when you had art trundling around in your head? Yeah, so I, I went to uh, I went to Gwell School Ballymone um, for primary school, mm-hmm. which is an Irish school, and then went to school Katrina um, in Glasnevin, just outside of Ballymone because that was the the closest kind of Irish secondary school. Um, so we went there, and I suppose for me, art would have been the only thing I was interested in secondary school. I, right? I, yeah, I wouldn't have had much of an interest in, 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 in much else. I never really would have applied myself. And first the third year, I suppose teachers would have seen me coming in from Glasgow Ballymone with them, the other lads from my area and would have seen that I wouldn't have had much of an interest and kind of just tired me with the same brush. I would have been kind of a, a, just put into a class of people that were considered maybe the messers and because I didn't have much of an interest in maybe maths or, and stuff like but, that. But is, this, uh, is it because you're from Ballymun? Is it what there's... Um, from the Ballymun school? Uh, well, I think... But it's this is Glasnevin. It's, it's a bit of both, uh, I think, at the time. See, it was different people running the school at the time and uh, School Katrina now, since then, I know some of the teachers and the principals and stuff in School Katrina now and they're much better with this sort of thing. But yeah. at the time, the, the principal at the time, I think, um, had maybe just had some bad experiences with people coming from the particular skills, uh, School in Chuckta Lake and Glasgow Ballymone, which are the two Irish primary skills in, in Ballymone. I think you would have just had some uh, negative experiences with young men from them skills and mm. would have probably just made an assumption that most of the lads coming from them skills were trouble. Well, that's the key thing, making the assumption. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of taking each person as they came. Um, did you did you have any issues in school? Did you, you showed up all the time? Yeah, I would have shown up most of the time until I got to about 40. And uh, in 40 in school, I wouldn't have had much of an interest in going to school anymore. Um, but I, I kind of was coming in and out of school. Around that time though, my me, me mom realised I had an interest in art and she kind of, in a roundabout way, kind of got me to go to the to the art galleries. So she would have been making a whole mission to go to the art gallery herself and then was kind of encouraging me to come along with her because she knew I would have rather done that than go to school. That's right, okay, that was a great idea. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a good idea. Um, Probably didn't realise at the time what was happening, but um, she took me to the art galleries and I seen a lot of work. I remember seeing a Philip Guston painting, uh, this brilliant cartoonish depiction of Klu Klux Klan members. Um, right. But it's a, it's kind of a satire and trying to show the ignorance of, of racism and stuff. But I remember thinking that, that that was a lot more accessible to me than some of these more kind of classical paintings and stuff. And I, I took an interest in it and I went home and I started googling and started reading up and things and then I think it was around that point that I would have started taking art a bit more serious and then was that, that was the Hugh Lane gallery was that it? was in the Hugh Lane yeah that was in the Hugh Lane and uh, then yeah my birthday would have came up a while after that and my mum was looking what you know what can I get you for your birthday you know and uh, 
I would have asked for a sketchbook and, and, a, and a few markers or pens or whatever to start start doodling. And then I would have went back to school then in fifth year, would have started bringing that, that sketchbook and them pens and stuff with me into school. I'd say your doodles now are pretty good. <laughs> they, got, <laughs> they got pretty good after all. Yeah, what the rest of us <laughs> might call doodles. It's amazing because we were talking to an artist here only a couple of weeks ago who would have done the Leaving Search in the 70s, 1980. And the idea of going to art college was just thrown out the window. You, knew to, you need to go and get a job. Yeah. But it's good to hear that it is it very radically changed now, isn't it? There's, yeah, there's, a, there's it, a path there for you. There, there is a path, yes, but I think the path is kind of still difficult. I think the path is kind of hard for people to see, especially within uh, communities like, like Ballymun. Like I would have had a lot of people kind of, kind of saying to me, well, what are you doing that for? Or why are you spending your time drawing pictures? Like, how are you going to make money off of this? How yeah. are you going to make a living out of this? Mm. And like, that's a fair question. Um, Obviously, like, it'd be great if we all came from some great privileged affluent background where you had a big wealth of money to sit and paint all day. But sure. obviously, most people don't. And uh, we all need to be concerned about how we're going to make money and pay rent, you know. Um, so it's a real concern. But people around kind of more working class areas and areas like Ballymun, um, they just can't see that pathway. You know, there's not much connection to the world of fine art or much experience in that field, so it can be very hard to see how you're going to do it. So there's talent just not not uh, emerging as a result? Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's a lot of talent not emerging. I think there's a lot of people who feel discouraged maybe or feel a little bit lost. And uh, there's definitely a mix of kind of social pressures and financial pressures that kind of deter people from following yeah. that. You mentioned the assumptions that even um, a school down the road was making about um, kids like you coming from the, the Ballymun schools. What about experiences going to galleries? Yeah, so experiences going to galleries were, were quite mixed. Like when I went, when I went with my mum, uh, it was always a great experience. But then I remember going with lads from school when we were about 16. Uh, we went to the National Gallery and there was two lads with me who, they had an interest in art and they were definitely interested in, in some of the work and they were looking at the paintings uh, very clearly though from a working class area, from an area like Ballymun, from the accents and the haircut and the, the jackets, like you can tell. So right. we walked into the gallery and I remember this lad pointing at the painting. He took an interest in the, the sixth seal in the National Gallery. Mm. It's a great biblical painting. Gigantic painting. Yeah, fire and lava and opening up from the ground. It's, it's a great painting. I remember him taking a real interest and he called me over because he knew he, I'd like art. Um, and he was like, look at how he painted this. Isn't this brilliant? And he was pointing at the painting. And I remember the security guard letting a roar at him like he shouted at him. And he was like, don't touch the paintings. And he was right. like, I wasn't touching the paintings. He was like, you were touching the paintings. I seen this school together was so like over the top and aggressive and and just in your face about it that the young lad turned to us and said, I'm leaving, I'm gone. And he walked out of the gallery. And I can oh, tell he you, left. For, yeah, oh, he right. left. He left. I, I can tell you for a fact now, that fella hasn't been back in the gallery since. And he had an interest in that, but mm. I can tell you he wasn't back in that gallery since because he was just met with competition. He was made feel like he shouldn't. You're not supposed to be here. Shouldn't have been yeah. there. Or that he was doing something wrong by being there and taking interest in the paint. And he just he just left. Yeah. Because art is for everyone. And I'm sure the gallery would be disgusted to hear that experience happening. But that unfortunately happened to him simply because, as you say, the way he looked, mm. they, were, yeah. they, they were the assumptions. Yeah. It didn't deter you. No, it didn't. It didn't deter me. Um, I always had an interest in it. And like you said, art is for everyone. Uh, and there's definitely people out there who are 
more than willing to help you or more than, more than interested in what you have to say like yeah. so there are there are the good sides to it as well there are positives to it like the axis and Ballymun who who I got uh, connected to and there's other youth projects as well like Pop to Youth Project and stuff around Ballymun who are great and are always encouraging young people to get involved in creativity whether it be music or, or art so there's there's a whole bunch of other avenues in which you can connect into it that uh, I think if you could just show young people in these areas that there are these other ways into it that you don't have to go straight into these intimidating spaces where you might be a little bit afraid or you might not 100% know what's going on. There are more local, more middle ground sort of spaces where you can find another way into that. Yeah. I mean, it, that's exactly what you're doing now, isn't it? You're yeah. trying to get these youngsters in. So before I talk about show up, I want to talk about um, the first project. What, what It was called What Does He Need? You mentioned it there. Yeah. Uh, exploring is first and second years in secondary school and what yeah, they that, that, that group was uh, it's not restricted to that now so what does he need was a project started by artist and educator Fiona Whelan along with Rialto U Project and the theatre group Broken Talkers mm-hmm. so it was it was their child first and they created this project that explores masculinity and what shapes young men and what young men need in kind of modern Dublin um, but it's not restricted to Dublin but that's where it started and uh yeah, I would have been brought in to work with a group in Dolphins Barn. As I said, we met a boy called Deco. Mm-hmm. So the idea for the boys in the making aspect of the group is you, you start with a group, you create a character, you create a name. Kind of represents them. people, is that so? Exactly. Deco was a Rialto. Yeah, exactly. Deco <laughs> was from Dolphins Barn and he was at their age and they spoke about all the things he liked and, you know, him going to the shops and buying sweets for his little sister out of the pocket money he gets from his mum and, mm. you know, things like this. Um, but there's some real you get some real depth to it when you when you talk and you investigate and explore some of the issues like the lads came up with a storyline for Deco where you know his dad didn't live with him anymore but his dad would call him every now and again on the phone right and that's in the story now you you're left to kind of fill in the gaps but you know you can you start to see these kind of societal issues that for sure, these young yeah. men are, are facing through this narrative in a really creative way so I think it's a really good project and uh, I'm very happy to be just, involved you, in You've it. said more than many government reports already what else did you find out about the uh, the, the kind of grievances of, of kids in school? Yeah I, I remember uh, there was one line we, we made a series of posters so there was a, there was a filmmaker involved in, in Deco as well uh, David McGovern uh, and he made a film with the young, the young lads and I was involved with the film process and then we went back and made some art in response to that we made posters and stuff. I remember there was one that said uh, Deco sees syringes in the sand pitch. So there's this field full of gravel outside the flats. Uh, so I think already that says something that, you know, there's not these clean fields where they can play football, it's all stones and gravel and, and bits of broken glass. And, and then in there you see these empty syringes as well. So you're, you're kind of painting an image of what's going on and the, the struggles they're facing without having to say it you know mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting I thought it was interesting as well that some of the grievances this was second class I think wasn't it the very innocent um, complaints in the world long queues yeah the second <laughs> class boys yeah and Donny Carney uh, school care on um, we made two characters up there James and Lewis we made a book uh, it was a brilliant book it was a lot more innocent compared to the Deco project uh, but their grievances were quite different yeah waiting in queues or getting stuck uh, speak, getting stuck outside the shop when the ma talks to someone that they see in, you know and <laughs> stand there that is one through all the ages isn't it <laughs> yeah. there's nothing worse than when you're a young fella and your mum spots someone in the street and she has to have a good old chin wag and you're stuck <laughs> if only that was the worst problem that they had and uh, as as it got older then the this isn't Donny Carney the 
uh, the grievances changed dramatically. Yeah, so the Dunny Carney group was the second class, and then the the Dolphins Barn group was was the first years. I get you. Yeah. yeah. So there there is quite a, a jump then. You yeah. know, coming from second class to to about sixth class first year, there's a, there's quite a difference. Like it goes from standing kills to then questioning whether or not they should be kissing boys or girls because other people are starting to do it and are they interested in boys and girls and you know like the questions that they're asking themselves it, it changes quite a bit and it's really interesting to see how that develops and they're having that conversation openly uh, among themselves yeah yeah mm. now obviously like I'm there as an artist and there's other people who come in to the project as artists and stuff as well but then there's youth workers um, and I find in the youth projects it's a lot easier to address them uh them conversations because they have a different relationship with the worker, you know, versus yeah. a teacher maybe in school. So you can't you can't get them open conversations if you build a relationship with the group. So it's very important to have a kind of long term project that you you slowly build up relationships with people and they they trust you more and they can speak to you more and they, but also that they're aware of what's going in, like what's going to be made public, what's going into the story, where is this project going? That they have control over the artwork itself that they have control over the narrative and then what narrative gets told about them and how they're represented they, these are all questions that come into socially engaged art practice which are very important I think it's, that's really the core of it you know So how different is the, the project you're involved with now show up that was um, what does he need Yeah So, so, what, what so the show up campaign the show up campaign was the show up campaign was very interesting uh, Niamh Mungi got in contact with me uh, she works kind of with the Axis as well as the Art Council so she would have became aware of me through the Axis and she got in contact, she said she was interested in my work and the types of projects that I've done and that they were doing a campaign to encourage young people and, and thought I'd be a good show for it. Uh, so I was more than happy to come on board. The The differences between, I suppose, it's it's definitely a lot more... Uh, it's not it's not a social engaged art pro, uh, project, that's the difference, you know, it's a, it's yeah. a social media campaign. To, but, uh, to get these youngsters into to the get these young people yeah. in, but I was very happy. I was very happy to be involved. I think it's a great idea. I'm very glad to see that uh, the Arts Council is trying to encourage young people and is reaching out to young people because there was definitely a disconnect. There was a lot of young people. I remember speaking to in the U projects around the time I was contacted about this. I was asking them like, "Do you know what the Arts Council is?" And they were like, "No, I don't know what the Arts Council is. They don't know what they do." There's a lot of young people who don't. I have a clue about what it is so it's nice to see that they're, they're trying to make an effort to introduce themselves to these sure, younger yeah. audiences and encourage them to go to these events that's great What kind of response are you getting? Yeah I'm getting hugely positive responses uh, around the show campaign and around the article in the newspaper there's a lot of positive responses uh, different people getting in contact with me artists friends schools and community organisations um, which is great getting a small bit of bit of stick on That's Facebook what but that happens on <laughs> Facebook happens. doesn't it <laughs> don't get too head up about that hopefully yeah. uh, when you're when you're chatting to all these youngsters you're young yourself you're only 23 and someone actually says here what a fabulous interview with Aaron 23 well done to him art is for everyone I see it in my 12 year old son he finds art calming it should definitely be promoted more for kids says Aoife and Galway well that's what you're you're here to do today I was wondering what is the state of teenagers uh, that from from your perspective of having seen and chatted and work, work, work with, worked with them in the, all these projects what, what's the state of them at the moment if that's not a too broad question yeah I suppose uh, yeah it's definitely very broad but I think um, I think a lot of young people in, in Dublin they, they feel a bit lost around where they're going or, or, or what they're doing I mean obviously that comes naturally with being a teenager but, yeah. but I think coming out of Covid and then as well with the cost of living issues and, and rent I know you probably 
think, well, how can that affect a teenager? But as they go through their teenage years and they, they want to start getting a job or maybe they're, they're looking at how they can progress, if they don't see a clear pathway on how they're going to progress into adulthood, if they don't, don't see steps ahead of them, it can detour them and it can it could push them the other way. I mean, there's definitely a real sense of confusion and loss with, with younger people now. That's incredible. I wouldn't have thought about that. You, you don't think teenagers are kind of following what's happening in the news and in the atmosphere of the country. You don't think they're thinking about the future at all. <laughs> but they, they totally are. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely, definitely. There's definitely young people out there who are. And there's definitely, you know, young people out there who are only caring about living in the present as well at the moment, which kind of offers a whole other set of uh, That's of allowed too, then, though, yeah. isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. allowed, you yeah, know, you're, they, are, they are teenagers, yeah. for goodness sake. Um, what would you say is, is, is kind of the thing that's going to help them the most? I think investment in these communities, especially within working class communities, um, I think there's young people who are on the fringes who could it could go either way and you see it all the time growing up, you know, we've seen it with my own groups of friends. You kind of get to a certain point, um, maybe 14, 15 in these areas and you're kind of almost offered an ultimatum. You're going to go one way or you're going to go the other. And I think it's very important to get in there while they're young and to put things in place to make sure that they don't go down the wrong path. And I think those things would be investment into community centres, art centres, uh, youth projects, get the young people in, invest in projects that are going to keep the young people engaged in youth projects and in art mm-hmm. centres, whether it be, and it doesn't have to be art, you know, it could be sport and, and a whole range of things, but obviously I'm speaking as an artist. Um, I think if you've got people in to do art projects, visual, music, and you keep them engaged, you work with them, throughout the teenage years it gives them another set of skills to work on that they can carry forward into adulthood and it keeps them out of trouble and it keeps them out of the street Will you run for election as well while you're at it? Influence <laughs> <laughs> as well um, how, how is Ballymun at the moment? I mean how is it viewed? It always seems to me as an outsider from Dublin uh, outside of Dublin that Ballymun always had the kind of pop culture coolness about it anyway along with all of the issues Yeah, but it must have changed it must be changing yeah, it's definitely changing. Um, it definitely changes, but it fluctuates. It goes through different phases. Ballymun does. It's it's complicated. Uh, but um, you know, I I don't, I don't know. Like I change issues in it, but I wouldn't change Ballymun. I wouldn't change the people of Ballymun. The people yeah. are always been what anyone says. If you speak to anyone who you know, you always oftentimes when you say I'm from Ballymun, someone says, "Oh well, I know someone who used to live there or whatever." But they they always say the people of Ballymun are the are the best part of Bella, and it is that is the case. There's always been a great sense of pride in the area, a great sense of community in the area. I think the sense of community has been lost at times, um, especially over the COVID stages yeah, and, yeah. and also poster generation. Some changes been made in the community. And it's kind of, it's kind of separated some of the community aspects of Ballymun. But we're trying what, to what are those changes that. you're talking about that, that kind of separated the place. Well, I think I think there's uh, I think there's physical changes, and then I think there's kind of cultural changes. So the physical changes to the landscape would have been the flats coming down, yeah, yeah. and people moving to houses, and it would have left a lot of green spaces in between in the middle of Ballymun. So there was a lot of empty space left between different housing estates, and then people within those housing estates are in their own homes, and they have front gardens and back gardens. So it changes amazing, the yeah. it changes the community dynamic versus the blocks of flats yeah. where people were passing each other on stairwells and on flats and uh, on balconies and so on. You know, people were a lot more connected back then. But then obviously, as well as that, 
comes the cultural changes with technology and and so on. You know, people have cars, people have phones. Isolating so, as well. Isolating as well. So more people spend time indoors and stuff. So the community aspect over the years, between physical changes and social cultural changes, it's just it's it's lost. It's been lost a little bit, but there's definitely people who are really passionate about bringing it back and trying to keep it alive. And I think we need to focus on that. We need to yeah. push that community aspect. And body Hell of a GA club up there as well. Yeah. Kick him, kick him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very powerful. <laughs> Very powerful. Uh, listen, you've really moved people. What an inspiring young man. We need to hear more of these stories. Wonderful to hear how passionate he's about art, spreading the word to young people. Well done to him. That's from Mary. Uh, this young guy gives me hope for the country. He's a good start of the day. That's from Joanna. Well, that's your that's your duty done. <laughs> um, what how do we find out about this campaign, Aaron? So the the campaign is uh, the show up campaign with the Arts Council. Um, you can find it on. It's a social media campaign, so you can find it on the Arts Council's Instagram yeah. as well. You can find it on my Instagram and you can find my book on Instagram, on Instagram. Well. you have great work on Instagram and particularly around the kind of old spirit of Ballymont some yeah. interesting quotes I didn't know what a mix mix rolls was but it was a local greasy spoon was it yeah yeah mix uh, rolls was great back <laughs> in the day yeah. <laughs> listen Aaron uh, Sunderland Kerry thanks a million for coming in to us thanks very and much and good luck to you we'll be watching we'll be watching what you do next 51551 that's the text Oliver Callan on RTE Radio 1 listen back on the RTE Radio app